This is the Apex United Methodist Church podcast. Uh, so tonight, uh, we are wrapping up uh, the sermon series that we've been uh, really engaging in for the last uh, six weeks. And so we started right after Easter, and we started with a conversation around Explore God, which is really an exploration of these big, big questions of faith that I think we ask as Christ followers, but we also find uh, in our neighbors and our coworkers and our friends and our family these questions that, that get pressed into our faith in a way uh, that uh, they're really begin to challenge us and, and, and shape how we understand uh, what it means to be Christians in this culture. Uh, we've been doing this as we've shared with over 50 other churches, and so we have uh, partnered with 50 churches in the Triangle. It's been actually a lot of fun. Uh, we've talked as pastors. We actually had lunch together a couple weeks ago. We're, we're getting together next Thursday just to process what this has been like. And uh, I had someone ask me this morning, uh, has, it, has it sort of accomplished what you hoped it accomplished? And I said, well, you know, we weren't really sure what it would do other than the fact that uh, we are trying to bear witness to the fact that, that God's church is bigger than this church. It's bigger than this church family and that we are connected in a way uh, that we want to be linked to these common, common goals to share God's love with this world. And so uh, if it has done that even in a little bit, that'd be great. Uh, one of our friends said he was driving in Dunn last week, and as he was driving through Dunn, saw an Explore God sign down in Dunn in Smithfield, and we're like, like that's awesome. So like, there's at least people having conversations as far away uh, as that. Um, Zeb, you did have those pictures up. We'll pull them back up. There, there, these are 10 of the churches that we um, have sort of highlighted this week, and, and part of our ask has been uh, that we are hoping that you are praying with us uh, for these churches and for our neighbors that attend these churches. Uh, these are just 10 of the 50 uh, plus churches that are doing this with us. And so it's just a chance. You may know some folks that go there. You may uh, have friends that go there. You may have neighbors that go there. You may have family that goes there. And our hope is that we are just praying together as we, uh, we seek God's word uh, together. Uh, tonight, uh, we are shifting to that last question. And the, the question that we're asking tonight uh, is simply, is the Bible reliable? Uh, is the Bible reliable? Uh, this is a question that most of the churches we're doing this with, with asked t- two weeks ago. Uh, we had our children's musical that Sunday morning, and so uh, we did not ask it here. Uh, Pastor Charlene was here Sunday night that night and asked, uh, does life have a purpose, I think? And so she was asking that question uh, for the church. Uh, but we decided we wanted to make sure we came back to this one. And so as we were looking at the best thing to preach on Mother's Day, we thought, why not? Let's just talk about the reliability of Scripture. I mean, that sounds like a great Mother's Day sermon. Uh, so we're going to talk about that tonight. Uh, it is a question that uh, I think is asked for some of you tonight. You hear that question and you think, yeah, that's an easy question. The answer is yes, I can move on, we're good. Uh, for some folks in our churches, this is a question that is uh, met with some skepticism, and it depends on what type of reliability we're looking at, uh, whether it's historical or scientific or uh, devotional or however you want to name the purpose of Scripture. Uh, but the reality for all of us is that we live in a culture where people ask questions of this book. Uh, they ask questions about the purpose of this book and the, and the reason for this book and whether or not uh, this book has anything to say uh, still for uh, our lives. Um, tonight, I really have two goals for us. One is, uh, I hope that if you've been part of this church for any season of time, uh, you know how significant Scripture is for us. Uh, we take it really seriously. Uh, we believe it is foundational to who we are. Uh, every night when we gather here, when you leave, uh, I guess when we leave, we have Scripture cards. Either the way in or the way out, you'll get these Scripture cards. And there are just daily readings that you can be engaging in uh, every day that gets us Scripture. Uh, we teach every week from Scripture. This is, the, while it may be topical, it is we, we're drawing from Scripture every week when we teach. In the summer, we're teaching 10 weeks on Philippians, where we're going into what is my favorite book of the New Testament, and we'll just have a chance to spend time just diving deep into, uh, into Philippians. Every Monday morning, I teach 
Uh, tomorrow morning, I'll teach at 10 a.m. a class uh, that is with 60 adults right here in our fellowship hall. And if you guys are around and hang out, it's a great class. Uh, we're going through Zechariah and Haggai, which has just been a ton of fun. Who's actually read Zechariah and Haggai? A couple of you have. That's good. Um, Corey's read it between this morning and tonight, just to make sure that he can answer that question yes. Between, there they are. They're totally, they're totally short. You can pull it off. Uh, and so we, but we've been going through Zechariah and Haggai for 18 weeks. It's been a ton of fun. Uh, but we, 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 we want to be in Scripture. We take seriously Scripture. So part of what I hope we hear tonight, what we've heard all, all morning, is that, you know, this matters to us. This book is central to who we are. And that should just be something that we all can say, yeah, we get that. We're there. The second thing I hope we do tonight is, is give ourselves some resources that when we are challenged or if we have questions about this, that we have language to talk about when it comes to this question. Now I recognize that, uh, that this question probably could be preached over five or six weeks. We can probably preach it over the course of a couple of years. Like we're not going to get all the nuance out tonight. We want to address several questions that I think will be helpful for, for us. And one of the reasons for that, again, is because we live in a culture where this is challenged. Um, Back in April, so a month ago this year, uh, GQ uh, published an article that said 21 books that you don't have to read. Uh, the Bible was number 12 on that list. Um, <clears throat> just for the record, I don't actually read GQ on a regular basis. Um, Corey told me about this article. He said, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, I did say this morning, I said that another pastor told me about it. We were baptizing Angelo's uh, son, Austin, at 935, and Angelo said, just for the record, it wasn't me. So he was just trying to opt out. But this is what GQ said about the Bible. Number 12 on the list of 21 books you don't have to read. It said the Holy Bible is rated very highly uh, by all the people who supposedly live by it, but who in actuality have not read it. First of all, like, ouch, right? <laughs> That's just sort of a, we'll come back to that, I promise. It is repetitive, self-contradictory, sententious, foolish, and even at times, ill-intentioned. So even if we read that question, is the Bible reliable? The reality of the culture we live in is that there are a lot of people who don't give credibility and authority to this book. That's just our reality. And whether it's our coworkers or our friends or our classmates, like, or some people are maybe in our family, uh, that this is what they think of scripture. They just have a skeptical view of this book. Uh, whether it's too old and outdated, whether the stories aren't true, whatever, however they would critique it, uh, that is actually the culture uh, that we live in. So again, my hope tonight is to give us some language, uh, some way by which we can reconcile that both for ourselves uh, but also as we have these conversations uh, with other folks. So we're going to do this with three ways. We're going to ask three questions. Uh, again, I could, we could probably preach this for a month, uh, but we're going to just ask these three questions tonight, and, I, and hopefully these three questions will be helpful for us as we, we unpack this, this bigger question. Uh, the first one is, are those who wrote it reliable? So when we ask about the reliability of a text, part of what we're asking, this book is 66 books. It's actually a collection of 66 books, uh, 27 New Testament, 39 Old Testament. Uh, written by different authors. And so one of the questions we ask is, is the people that actually wrote those 66 books, are they reliable? Is their a testimony reliable? How do we know their testimony is reliable uh, or not? Is the Bible reliable for its stated purpose? Uh, the Bible has a particular purpose. It is not necessarily designed to be a history book. It's not necessarily designed to be a scientific manual. Uh, it's not necessarily designed to be uh, other things. It has a particular purpose that is, the, is, is uh, for Scripture. We'll get into that a little bit tonight and ask that question. And then lastly, we'll ask, is the Bible reliable for me? You know, we believe that this Bible is still reliable and relevant for us. And so what does that mean for us and how do we engage uh, that, that conversation? Uh, so we'll start with the first one. Are those who wrote it uh, reliable? And this really will be uh, coming at it from two different angles, internal reliability and external reliability. Internal reliability meaning uh, that internal to itself, 
How did the authors write in a way that promoted reliability in the time, context, and space which they wrote? And so, so why did, what, did, what did this book matter for those that were hearing it uh, perhaps for the first time? Uh, we're going to start uh, in Mark uh, chapter 15, uh, verse 21. And this is what uh, Mark writes when Mark is describing the time when Jesus is marching up the hill to Golgotha, uh, carrying the cross, he has been beaten, uh, he has been wounded, and they're walking up, and this is what, uh, how Mark tells that story. Uh, Mark says this, They compelled a passerby who was coming in from the country to carry his cross. It was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Um, now, I will tell you that if you go and look through the Gospel of Mark, if you look through all the Gospels, the only place that you will see these two names, Alexander and Rufus, is right here. It is one obscure reference and one story across the Gospel of Mark. And one thing that I ask when I see things like that is why? Like, why would Mark put the names of Alexander and Rufus in this text? Wouldn't Simon of Cyrene be enough? Like, why does that matter? And part of why I think and part of why scholars have said this Mark may have written this way. Now, you have to remember, Mark's gospel is an immediate gospel. Everything is like right now. It's immediately this, immediately this, immediately this. He just moves on. He does not slow down for things like details. That's not how Mark writes. And so for this, it really is a strange sort of sentence for him to have thrown in there. And one theory that that people have, one thought is uh, that Mark inserted this because people in that region that are reading Mark's gospel that would have heard these stories would have known uh, Alexander and Rufus. They'd been familiar with these guys. They'd been well-known across the, maybe the community and, and so that you can go ask them, right? So like I told a story this morning about fishing. I don't know how many people fish, uh, but I know when I go to fish, I'm not all that successful. But when I am successful, I catch really big fish. Um, <clears throat> so if I came back and told you that I caught a really big fish on a story, if I came, you know what? I went fishing for the weekend, caught a really big fish. Like, I cannot tell you how awesome and magnificent it was. Um, you guys may laugh at me and say, there's no way. Like you're just not that good of a fisherman. Now, if I told you I went and caught a really big fish, it was magnificent, and I took Corey with me, and Corey can vouch all for it, you guys trust Corey. So you can say, oh, well, if Corey says it's true, then clearly says it's true. If you don't trust Corey, then, you know, I'd say Judy went with me, with me, and Judy and Corey went, and Judy and Corey can totally testify to the fact that I caught this really big fish. And if you don't believe me, go ask them. And in some ways, this is what Mark's doing. Mark's saying, this is the story of the gospel. And not only is this the story, this is what happens, but if you have questions, here are real people that you know, that you trust, that you can go ask these questions. And this happened all the time in the Gospels. When Jesus healed someone, he often healed someone in a place or in a community that people would have known. And so it wasn't just that he healed a random person on a random road. It was Jesus healed someone in Simon's house. Or or, or Jesus healed someone uh, in this community with this group of people. It was very particular that the gospel writers were writing these things. Uh, When Jesus met a woman at the well, it wasn't just some woman at some well. It was a particular woman at Jacob's well in Samaria. The details mattered. And I think the reason the details mattered is because these details could have been verifiable. People could go check and say, is this true? Did this story really happen? And there were people who were still closely connected enough to these stories uh, that those connections began to be significant in that time. And so one of the questions you ask is, is if the authors, if these stories were not true, if they were not verifiable, uh, why insert these details? Why begin to share some of these, these things that, that hold Scripture uh, to a particular people at a particular time? Uh, the other place that we find this often internally uh, with the Gospels is some of the details 
uh, don't actually, would not have increased reliability in the time. Like it wouldn't have made it stronger. Uh, one of those places is in John's gospel. Uh, it's just sort of a strange way. If John was trying to make up a story and make it strong, this is not how he would tell it. I'll explain that in a minute. This is John chapter 20. It's a story that we often, uh, you often hear on Easter. We heard it six weeks ago uh, here. Where it talks about the first time uh, that someone experienced the resurrection. And this is how John writes the story. He says, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, a Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Uh, now I'll tell you, for us, that doesn't sound very strange. It seems like a normal thing to have a story told that way. But the reality is, is in that time, to have a woman be the first person to testify to the resurrection uh, would have been outlandish. Uh, a woman's testimony in a court of law in that time had no validity. It would not have been received uh, with validity. And so the only way to prove that something was true, particularly something as out like as crazy as, as someone being raised from the dead would be had to have two trustworthy men go and see the event. That's just how it worked. But that's not how John told the story. John was very particular to tell the story the way it happened, the way that it actually happened, that Mary Magdalene, a woman who was in that time not trustworthy, was the one that found this person raised from the dead, the story that would make no sense, and yet that's how he told it. Again, internally, you see that John chose truth over credibility which again, I think is incredibly vital for us as we understand scripture. And I think for us today, it's incredibly important because as we look back on scripture now, and we see the story told as it happened, uh, we see the value that the gospel places on women uh, then. And it was a woman who preached the first sermon. Like when we talk about women in ministry, which we don't talk about a lot here, so we don't have to, we're very fortunate in that. Uh, we just have to look back here and said, look, the person who preached the first Easter sermon was a woman. So if you've got a problem with that, then there you go. That's how scripture defends it. Uh, but that's how John told the story. Again, some internal reliability around um, some of those stories. The other place we see in Scripture happening, and this is external, some external thoughts too, is how Scripture is always placed historically. Uh, and so while the primary pur purpose of Scripture is not to be a history book, we see these stories of Scripture placed in real history. Again, they're not just random stories. They're stories that have a particular time, a particular people, a particular history about them. And so I'm going to flip right now to Matthew chapter 2. Uh, this is the story of Jesus. It's after he was born. Uh, so Matthew 2, 1 through 2. Uh, the way Matthew describes what's happening in the times, he starts with these words, and these words are key. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, asking, where is this child who's been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have paid to come, him, or come to pay him homage. As Matthew writes it, he doesn't just write, there was this guy that was born in Bethlehem. He writes, in the time of King Herod, he positions it. When we talk about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, it was with Pontius Pilate, a particular governor in the time. It's always in history where these stories are told. They're not just out there as some myth somewhere, but they're particular people, particular time. You flip to Daniel chapter 1, which is where we, uh, what we preached last summer uh, for our Bible text. Daniel 1.1, again, you see the same sort of pattern. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. You know, this uh, Jewish exile in return is one of those key stories in Scripture. 
of what it means to be kicked out of their region, to be pulled away, to be sent uh, into diaspora, to be spread, and then brought back in. It's part of God's redemption story. But it's a particular story with a king that is not Jewish, that's Babylonian, that is historically verifiable. We know Nebuchadnezzar existed, and not just from Scripture, from other sources. And so the story is situated in real history, with real time, uh, with real, real people. So that's the first question, and that's one of the ways that we engage that. Again, I could probably spend 20, 30 minutes, probably an hour, honestly, talking through all the ways that we would answer that question, but that's one way when we talk about reliability that we begin to address uh, that question. The second question is about the purpose of Scripture, and that is, is the Bible reliable uh, for its stated purposes? Uh, So the, the presumptive question there is, why does the Bible exist? Like, what is the purpose of uh, Scripture? Uh, We're going to flip to John chapter 5, and this is how Jesus talks about this. Now, uh, before we get into the actual Scripture story, uh, one of the things that is happening here in John 5 is Jesus has gone uh, to heal a person, a man who's been uh, sick for 38 years. That's how Scripture describes it. Uh, He's sitting by a pool. You may know the story, and, and he is paralyzed. He can't get up and walk. And so the pool has uh, a healing, uh, when it's stirred up, has healing qualities. And so if you can get to the pool, some people experience healing in the pool. And so for 38 years, he's been trying to get to the pool. And the man's like, I've been trying. I can't get down there. Someone always cuts in front of me. And Jesus comes to the man and, and asks this question that I think is just great in Scripture. He's like, well, do you want to be healed? And the man is much more gracious than I think I would have been. I'm like, why do you think I'm here? Like, it's like, you know, of course I want to be healed. And Jesus says, well, then take up your mat and walk. Now, the problem with this story is that it's the Sabbath when Jesus heals him. And so there's these Jewish guys that begin to walk by this man who was just healed after 38 years of sickness. And they look at him and they say, what are you doing? Have you not read the scriptures? Don't you know it's illegal to lift, to carry your mat on the Sabbath? <coughs> That's work. You cannot work on the Sabbath. Have you not read, you know, Moses? And like, I just, I hear that. And like, if I, again, if I was that guy, like, I'd just kind of be like, I've been waiting to walk for 38 years. Like, I, I'm going to, like, I'm not waiting till tomorrow. Like, this is not like a, a wait for Monday kind of healing. But this is how Jesus addresses those guys who point to that particular law at that particular time. He says, you search the scriptures Again, in this case, referring to those Old Testament laws. Because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that testify on my behalf. In the New Living, New Living Translation, this is how it reads. I think it's helpful for us tonight. It says, you search the scriptures because they, you think they give you eternal life. But the scriptures point to me. And then Jesus continues, and if you read that passage from 39 on, he says, like, I'm right here in front of you. You guys spend so much time looking at Moses in, in this black and white law about Sabbath that you miss the point. Like, I'm right here. All of the Old and New Testaments, all of the law and the prophets, they're, like, they're about me. And, if, if I, and I want to insert this. This is not in Scripture. It's kind of like, and if I want to heal, heal on the Sabbath, so be it. I'll heal on the Sabbath, right? Jesus says this is why this book exists. The primary purpose for why this book exists is to point us toward Jesus. That is the purpose of the Old and the New Testaments. It's the purpose of the prophets, the purpose of Moses, the purpose of Revelation. It all points back to the central person of Jesus, born in Bethlehem, lived, died, raised for our sake, so that we might be 
pursued and drawn into God's grand story, God's grand love story, where he's bringing humanity back to God's self. That's why scriptures exist. I told you earlier, I'm teaching Zechariah and Haggai to our, uh, on Monday mornings. And this past week, we taught Zechariah chapter 12. And in chapter 12, again, Zechariah is telling this story at the end of Babylonian exile. So Zechariah and Haggai exist. Uh, 600 BC, Nebuchadnezzar comes, uh, exiles the Jewish people. Uh, 520 is when Zechariah and Haggai exist. They've been started to be restored by Cyrus into that region. They're starting to rebuild the temple. That's what's happening. And Zechariah uh, shares this prophecy in Zechariah 12, uh, verse 10. He begins it by saying, this is an oracle of God. This is from God. He says, And I will pour out a spirit of compassion and supplication on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that when they look on the one whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. As one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him, as one weeps over a firstborn. In chapter 13, verse 1, it says, On that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. Zechariah, 520 years before Jesus, is prophesying, speaking on behalf of God, of a day that will come when the people of Israel will mourn at the one they have pierced. If you know the story of Jesus' death, there's a moment in Jesus' death, not only where his wrists and his ankles are pierced, but when they're walking because they want them to die faster because the Sabbath is coming to break Jesus' legs. And they walk by Jesus and they realize that Jesus is already dead. They didn't break his legs. And they take a spear and they pierce him. The word in, in scripture is to pierce. They pierce him in his side and blood and water flow from his side. And when the gospel writers are telling this story, they're, they're pointing back to Zechariah and saying, don't you remember the prophet? 520 years ago who said there will be a day when the, on that day you will mourn the one who is pierced. On that day Israel will be cleansed from sin and impurity. Zechariah, 520 years earlier, is pointing toward Jesus, pointing to the day, pointing to Good Friday, when the, on that day they, we would experience, Israel would, and ultimately we will, uh, experience cleansing from sin uh, and from impurity. So again, all of Scripture, law, prophets, New Testament, letters, revelation, all pointing uh, to the person of Jesus. The second, person, the second purpose is this, and it's a sub-purpose, and it comes, again, we, we probably are familiar with some of these. This is from 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, when Paul's writing about why Scripture exists. This is what Paul says. Uh, Paul says to Timothy, his uh, mentee, he says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, in that letter, this is what it says. Indeed, the word of God is living and active, uh, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing until it divides soul from spirit, and joints from marrow, and is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Uh, both in Timothy and Hebrews, you see this theme that uh, what Scripture is about is changing who we are. I mean, it's about the heart. I mean, Hebrews says it very clearly. This is what it's about. It's actually... Again, it's not just some history book. It's not just some science book. It's not just uh, some stories of an ancient people 2,000 years ago. It's actually about changing us. When it points us to Jesus, it's for the purpose of changing who we are. Uh, Jesus becomes way more about changing our heart, and by changing our heart, our behavior, our character is changed than by trying to change our behavior through a set of rules and that, therefore, our heart would be changed. Jesus flips it. 
And all of scripture really becomes about that purpose. We are to be transformed by this. It's part of why we pray uh, many weeks when we gather that we want to have an encounter with the Holy Spirit. And in that encounter that we might be changed. And as we are changed, we begin to look more like Jesus, more like the one uh, who scripture points to. Uh, The Methodist Church uh, has a stance on scripture, a statement about what we believe about it. This is what we say in our official sort of language on Holy Scripture. We say we believe the Holy Bible, the Old and the New Testaments, reveals the Word of God so far as as it is necessary for our salvation. It is to be received through the Holy Spirit as the true rule and guide for faith and practice. Whatever is not revealed in or established by the Holy Scriptures is not to be made an article of faith, nor is it to be taught as essential to salvation. When we talk about salvation, the root word for salvation is salvo. It means a healing ointment or it means to be made whole. Salvation, when we talk about that, is, is the process of being healed or made whole. And we believe that that's what Scripture's for. Scripture's to point us to Jesus, to change our hearts, and in pointing us to Jesus and changing our hearts to make us whole, to make us right again, so that we might be in full relationship with God. That's, that's what it's all about. It's about drawing us back into this, uh, this love story that, that God offers. The last question we're going to talk about tonight, and we'll close with this, is, is the Bible reliable uh, for me? Is it reliable for me? Uh, there's a moment in the book of Acts. Uh, the, the author of Acts is actually the same author as the, as the book of Luke. It's, Luke wrote, writes both, uh, both sections, both Luke, the gospel, as well as Acts, the, early, early, the story of the early church. And in the first 16 chapters of, of Acts, uh, Luke just tells these stories. Uh, he's telling very third person. Uh, very, this is what happened to Paul, this is what happened to Barnabas, this is what happened to uh, Peter, this is what happened to the Council of Jerusalem. Like he's looking out and really almost as an observer, uh, watching and writing what has happened. And in Acts 16, for the first time, that language uh, shifts. It happens three times in the book of Acts, all after this chapter. And it says this, again, Luke sort of speaking in third person. They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come opposite Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And during the night, Paul had a vision. There stood a man of Macedonia pleading with him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And then this is where the language changes, verse 10. When he, that is Paul, had seen the vision, we immediately tried to cross over to Macedonia, being convinced that God had called us to proclaim the good news to them. Something happens in Acts chapter 16 where Luke no longer sees himself as an observer, but as a participant in this story. And Luke starts to use the language of we. We go and proclaim the gospel. We are trusted with the good news. It is us that goes and does this work. And I think... As we talk about the reliability of Scripture, one of the questions that we have to answer for ourselves, and one of the questions that I have certainly sought for my own self, is, is this book a book that's still reliable for me? Is it a book that's changing me? Is it a book that's directing me? Is it one that is drawing me into this story in a way where I say this, where I say, we are going. I am going to carry the good news. I am being transformed. I am experiencing new life because of this story. And I will tell you, that's exactly how I experience Scripture. I believe this book has changed who I am. It has changed the decisions I've made. It has changed the relationships that I've been in. It's changed my very vocation. Uh, The work that I do has been changed because I believe that this book is not just a book that was relevant 2,000 years ago, 
but it's a book that is still relevant today, still calling us through the work of the Holy Spirit that we might participate in God's work. That we too might say this is a we, this is an us that is being drawn through God's word, through the Holy Spirit to continually share this good news with the very lives that we live, the very words that we speak, the very way that we engage uh, as a church. Uh, So here's my challenge tonight. Uh, It's two things, uh, super simple. Uh, The first one, when it comes to the Bible, my very first challenge to all of us is just read it. (laughs) Like, read it. Uh, I don't want it to be said of us what was said in GQ, that that we are a people who uh, claim to believe that this is true, but have no idea what it says. Uh, I think that that is absolutely true of some Christians. And I would hope that we would spend time to read it. It would take you a month. If you read 30 minutes a day uh, for a month, you can get through the entire New Testament uh, in, in a month. Like, just read it. Corey read all of Zechariah and Haggai this afternoon. So, like, it's, just, you know, it's totally doable. Um, but know it. Learn it. Uh, get familiar with it. Use those scripture cards as a, as a way to daily be in God's word. Because I think if we don't know it, if we don't read it, uh, it, it loses its ability to be foundational for who we are. The second thing I would challenge you to do is that when you're reading it, continually ask that question. Well, what's God saying to me today? For me today, what is God's word leading me to be? Who is God's word leading me to be? How is God's word leading me to change my relationships, to change my prayers, to change my perception about God and about humanity? Like, how is God's word shifting my imagination today? Because again, I think, I just, I trust, I know this story is still for us. It's still true for us. It's still real for us. It's still calling us to be a different kind of people, a different kind of church that is continually being transformed and challenged by God's Holy Spirit.